You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad that you're joining me for Bible study. This week's podcast covers week two of Known, a nine-week study on the Gospel of John. Known is a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study of John. In this week's lesson, we talk about the invitation that God has issued us to come, to see, to know, and to make known the Word that became flesh. This teaching corresponds with the study that begins on page 4 of the Learner Workbook found at leslieannjones.com known. Let's talk for a minute about invitations. Who has gotten an invitation in the mail this week? Anyone? Miss Jeanette, what kind of invitation did you get? A wedding invitation. So was it nice and formal or is it, was it more casual? Well, okay, so if we're planning a wedding, then we tend to get like the nice heavy cardstock and some fancy script or something like that because the invitation tells you a lot about the kind of event that's going to be, right? Okay, so I got a kid's birthday party invitation. I mean, I didn't. My daughters got it. It was delivered to my house, and I got it from the mailbox. Um, I haven't told them about it yet. Does anybody else do that? <laughs> Hide them. My husband is like, hey, look, you got an invitation. I'm like, don't show them. <laughs> we might not go. <laughs> like we, we have to check the schedule before we tell them about the invitation. So this one was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one. We will most likely go to that party, but I still haven't told them about it. It's on my desk. Micah saw it, and she said, what's that for? I was like, mm, I, I don't know. Don't know what that is. I don't know why I don't want to tell them about the invitation. She can read it, but amazingly, she did not, like, flip it over <laughs> and read the details. So kids' birthday party invitations, a little more formal, a little more casual. Uh, informal. Um, What about if you are trying to get a group together to go out to eat or meet at the coffee shop or have lunch somewhere someday? Is that even more, like you don't send out a card for that, a text message, or maybe if you're really feeling it, you can give a phone call. Um, Not very many of us do that these days, but I'll, I'll be honest and say I'm not a huge fan of texting that much. Like if somebody wants to have a conversation with me, please pick up the phone and call me. That's an invitation to all of you, by the way. Um, if, the, if there needs to be a conversation, then let's actually talk about it. Let's don't text about it. But anyway, our lives are full of invitations. We get them all the time, and we kind of know what to expect by the invitations that we receive. This chapter that we studied today, John chapter 1, is really an invitation to all of us to come and to see, to look at, to behold the wonder of who Jesus is and how he has revealed himself to us. Um, it's, a, it's an invitation to understand, to know, to be enlightened, and to behold. And how we respond to this, by the way, there's a section, what page is it on? Not for those of you who are there, I've covered mine up with my own notes. Page 10, if you want to take notes, it's there. Um, it's an invitation to... To see Jesus and how you respond to this is the most most important decision you'll ever make. What you do with this invitation to come and see matters. And so um, if we're going to start talking about this invitation, then we should start in the same place where John begins. And he begins at the beginning. Now, there are three books of the Bible that start with this phrase. What's one of them? Genesis 1. And then this one that we're looking at, John 1. 
And then the other one is 1 John 1, and it's not exactly the same, but it's interesting that John also wrote 1 John. And if I can flip there, it's a tiny little thing, so I always slip right past it. Hold on, let me find it. I'm in 1 Peter, I'm close. Okay, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. And so John, when he is talking to people, when he's writing letters to people, he's always pointing them back to the beginning, that Jesus was there in the beginning with God. Now, when you're writing, if you are a writer, if you have ever written anything, if your teachers taught you anything about writing essays, they taught you how important it was to have a strong beginning, the introductory paragraph or, or whatever it is that you're writing. Um, when I was in college at Mississippi State studying journalism in all of my news writing classes, they taught us that we had 25 words, just 25, to catch a reader's attention to make them keep reading the rest of the article. So just think about it. If you're scanning the newspaper or reading articles online or whatever, you read the first paragraph or so, and then you flip past to the next thing. You've you got to get all that important information in right there in the very beginning. And that's what John does here. He starts off in the very beginning, and this first 18 verses of the chapter is like the whole entire book of John in a nutshell. You have... Jesus coming, you have the opposition that he faces with the darkness and the people not receiving him. You have the promises of eternal life to those who believe him. And then you have the promise of glory in the future. And just telling you about John and what those who believe in him are called to do or to called to bear witness. So the whole book is about knowing God and then also turning around and making him known. So when we talk about strong beginnings, um, there are some phrases that we use that you automatically associate with a certain kind of story. If I say once upon a time, what do you think of? It's a fairy tale. Um, So if you were sitting in a church and someone stood up and said, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to witness the wedding. Yes, the joining of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Is that how it continues? Um, Okay, so how about this one? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Anyone? Star Wars. Okay, and so when you hear the words, in the beginning, what do you think of? How do you expect the sentence to end? God created the heavens and the earth. And the people who heard this letter for the first time, because that's really what it was, was a letter, that's where their mind would have gone. When they heard the words, in the beginning, they would have expected John to continue on with the story of creation. And he does, but he does it in a way that just kind of completely sets it on his head because it's weird, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is with this Word? Why is he? Because there's nowhere else, really, except for John's writings that refers to Jesus as the Word. There's nowhere else in the New... All the other gospel writers just call him Jesus. <laughs> so why, why does he do that? And um, there's probably several different reasons why he does it. But again, I think he was relating to the people that he was writing to. So his crowd would have been made up of Jews, but also Greek people, people who spoke Greek. And they would have been familiar with the prevailing philosophies of the day. 
And in that day, which I'm not going to go in depth into all this because I don't understand it. It sounds crazy and I haven't studied it in depth. But in that day, the smartest philosophers um, referred to the concept of the logos as the supreme order of reasoning behind the universe. Now, logos is the Greek word for word. Okay? So when they heard, would hear John referring to, in the beginning was the word, they would say, yeah, the word has been there since the beginning. That is the ordering principle of the universe. And so by starting off the gospel in this way, he's drawing in his Jewish hearers and the more secular Greek hearers, and then he's redefining those terms for them. He's saying, yes, you're right, the word was in the beginning, but now let me tell you what the word really is. It's not this random ordering principle thing. It's Jesus. It's God in the flesh. And so he has made them kind of sit up and take notice to pay attention to what he has to say so that he can continue on and tell them he's gotten their attention. Now he's going to tell them the important part of his message. So... He goes on, and in those first three verses, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, from these three verses in the beginning, we can learn some very important information about Jesus. The first thing that we learn is that he is eternal. He always has been, and he always will be. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. Now, I don't know if anybody ever explained this to me growing up, but I just assumed, because no one ever explained it to me, that like the Old Testament was all about laws and all that kind of stuff, and the New Testament was about Jesus, and Jesus was something new. You know, like, that was then, this is now. Now we have Jesus. Too bad for them. Glad we have Jesus. And so um, it, it, I just didn't know. It was never explicitly told me that Jesus has always been. And so if you draw out the implications of that, that Jesus was there in the beginning with God, it means that he is not plan B. Okay, God didn't send Jesus into the world to fix the mess that humanity made. If you also believe, we're in deep waters here, I know it's, it's, a, hard, it's, it's a hard way to start, but stick with me. If you also believe that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, he can't be surprised by anything, right? Because his knowledge is perfect. So it would come as no surprise to him that humanity was going to sin. He had to know before he created us what was going to happen. And he knew and he had a plan for it from the very beginning. Y'all, this gives me chills. Like I'm burning up up here and I have chills. Because, because the fact that he knew what was going to happen and he knew what he would have to do to save us from ourselves, from the very beginning. And he did it anyway. He created us anyway, knowing that we were going to be sinful, knowing that we were going to be a savior. And that's what it means when it says, in the beginning was the word. It means Jesus has been there waiting to come in and rescue us at that perfect moment since the time before time began. It was always God's plan to redeem the world to himself through himself and he does that through the person in the work of Jesus 
So not only is Jesus eternal, but he is also with God. Okay? And these verses are some of the most important for our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we've talked about this a little bit last week, how God is one God with three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. There is only one God, but they are distinct. He is, I can't even, I don't even know how to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Like you start trying to explain it and then you're running in circles. But God interacts with humanity in different ways. And each of the ways that he interacts with us um, is encapsulated in one of the persons. So you have God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Did anybody grow up in a church that said the creeds? Anyone? Julie? Amber? Okay, see, I have it with me because they did such a good job of, like, defining what it is. This is the Book of Common Prayer um, used in the Episcopal Church, but this is the Nicene Creed, which is the longer one, and I'm only going to read the section on Jesus, but it says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. There's another section for the Holy Spirit and another section for God the Father. And each one goes into great detail about the different roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so just here, in these few words, John is saying, and the word was, with God. And he was God. So he is both with God and he is God at the same time. Now, if that doesn't make your mind try to do crazy gymnastics, then I don't know what will. And so it's a mystery, but it is true. And so some things are just better left to accept than to try to understand. And that's one of them is that um, God has always been and always will be three in one. And this section is focused especially on Jesus. But as we do more of our study, which if you manage to read through the whole book, you probably saw some of the sections where Jesus was saying, my father has sent me to do this. I'm going to send the helper, the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit to come and help you do this. And Jesus talks more about their distinct roles. But a lot of our doctrine comes from this section in John. So he was with God and he was God. Um, the word is the physical presence and the revelation of God himself. He, it is not just that Jesus is like God, but that he is God. He is the creator. He is the source of all things. So here's the question. Why is that important? Why does it matter in our everyday lives? I mean, does it matter? Why is it important to you that God came down? Does it? Because if we had come down, we would not have not had access to him. We would have had continued to go through the priests, like the Israelites did. You know, if Jesus had not come and sacrificed himself for every human being, then he wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. Yeah. A relationship with God. He gave us a direct line to God. 
He came to us. We couldn't go to him. So here's the thing that... Go ahead. Who was... I think it's also telling um, when you move on past these first verses and, you know, and it talks about the true light in verse nine was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And so um, even though in the times before Jesus's physical life on earth, God had revealed himself to humanity in various ways. Throughout the course of history, they still managed to get it so wrong. <laughs> you know, that so much so that when he came, they didn't recognize him. And so it was necessary for him to come for us to see the truth. Because on our own, apparently we're worthless and can't understand anything. Like, you have to have it right in front of your face <laughs> to understand it. Um, and, and so that's what he did. He came. And another thing that, that it... That's so important about this, I think, that it shows us about God is it shows the incredible grace and mercy that he has for humanity, the love. You know, when when I say that he came down or he created us knowing what it was going to cost him anyway, who does that? Nobody that I know does that. Like when we make decisions, we like weigh the risks and rewards, right? And do the risks outweigh the rewards? And if the risks outweigh the rewards, then we usually don't do it. But in this case, apparently, the rewards of having us as his own people was more of a reward, enough of a reward to let him forget that risk, to count it as nothing, and to do it anyway. And so, in the incarnation and Jesus coming, you can just see how much he cares for us, that that he would come and that he would be with us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So the one who comes to save us is the one who created us, and he came so that we could have life and and have it through him. Um, In verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When Jesus came, he came bringing light and life. And that is the same thing. If you look back at Genesis 1, that was in your homework to kind of look back over what happened through the word of God in Genesis 1. You know, in Genesis 1, God creates the whole world by the power of his word. It doesn't say God wanted there to be light. So he set out and he gathered up a few molecules and he tossed them together. And No, it says that he called it forth into being with his speech, the power of his words brought forth light and it brought forth every living thing. He said, let there be animals, let there be sea creatures, let there be birds of the air, all, all of these things God created by the power of his word. And so the same thing happens here. We see in verse four in him was life and the life was the light of men. So Jesus brings life and light with him. And it says that the, the light 
cannot be extinguished. The darkness has not overcome it. And I think this is a word that we need to hear because once the light has come, it cannot be put out. No matter how dark the days may seem, no matter how bad things may get. One of my favorite um, modern hymns, I guess, that we sing is In Christ Alone. And there's a line in it that says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. I mean, you think it's the worst thing ever, but what does the next line say? Does anyone know? Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And so it must have seemed like um, that darkness had won when Jesus died on the cross that day. And in those three days intervening, it must have seemed that the darkness had finally won. Um, But dawn is always coming. You know, the light may be dim, but it has not been put out by the darkness of the world. And this passage goes on to say that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John the Baptist was sent to point the people who were stumbling around in the dark to the light. Like, hey, look, over there, there's a light coming. If you go that way, you'll be able to see. You'll be able to know what's ahead. That was John's job. Now, what do you know about John the Baptist? Do you remember anything about him from the other Gospels? Usually we tell his story at Christmas, and that's about it, because his birth was foretold before Jesus's. He's Luke chapter 1, Jesus is Luke chapter 2. So um, what do any of you remember about John the Baptist's birth and the prophecies about him? Anything? Yes. He did. Yeah, he's he's like this weird character who's presented like wearing like woolly clothes and like eating locusts, like weird kind of prophet type behavior that is given to John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist's birth was foretold before Jesus's. He is actually okay, second cousin. Okay, his mother is Mary's cousin. So whatever that makes him, first cousin, twice, second cousin, whatever it is, they're cousins of some sort, Jesus and John the Baptist are. I don't know. I get all that confused. I've never been able to to tell family relationships like that. So anyway, um, John the Baptist's birth is foretold. His dad is actually, Zechariah is a priest, and he's ministering in the temple one day, and the angel appears to him and tells him that they're going to have a kid, and Zechariah doesn't really believe him because his wife has been barren forever, <laughs> And so then, because of his unbelief, he is um, made mute until John is born. And so, you know, he comes out of the temple, and everybody's, like, talking to him. He's like, can't tell you what happened. And so, um, anyway, you know, he writes things down, and John the Baptist is born. And when he's born, let's see, Luke chapter 1. Um when he's born, then Zechariah can talk again. That's the important. He, he can speak finally. And he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for Jesus, to say, hey, get ready. He's coming. Our, our Savior is coming soon. You need to get your heart ready to hear from him and to follow him. And that was his job. That was all he did um, was point people to Jesus. But even though John did that preparing type of work, um, Jesus was not exactly well received. You can tell because they killed him. Um, But aside from that, you know, if you read through and you read his interactions with the religious leaders of the time, it was not generally pleasant conversation it was very you know butting heads the whole time he was not well received um which is a sad thing because it says in verse 11 he came to his own people and his own did not receive him so who were his own people who are the people that were supposed to be god's own people Yes, the Jews, the people of Israel, they were the people of God. That was their special designation was to be the people of God. And yet when God came to them, they didn't recognize him. And so it says that even though they didn't receive him, that he gave the right to anyone who believed in his name to become children of God. And this is also kind of setting on its head the prevailing notion of that day because that day in that day it was said that you had if you were going to follow God you had to be Jewish like if you wanted to be one of his people you had to be a Jew and this is saying that the true children of God are not necessarily those who are Jewish by birth or who have the right ancestry but those who are marked by faith faith is what makes someone a child of God not your lineage, not your descent. And so this sounds commonplace and obvious to us, I think because we've grown up with it, but it would have been a radical thing for them to depart from this um, notion that, that God's people wasn't necessarily a nation, but they were marked by faithfulness in their hearts. And so that was a lot of the problem that Jesus had with the religious leaders was he was saying, you're not a child of Abraham. And they're like, what are you talking about? I can trace my lineage all the way back. And he says, no, those who are children of of Abraham are those who have faith. Because if you read way back in Genesis um, 15, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it was Abraham's faith that made him righteous not necessarily his blood. And Paul talks a lot about, which we'll, I don't, I'm not going to get sidetracked on it. We'll talk about that more when we get to the chapters where Jesus is arguing with the Jews. So I'm getting sidetracked by that. We'll um, move on to um, keep talking about John. So we'll see the truth of these verses, verses 9 through 13, come to pass in the coming weeks that those who should have known him didn't recognize him and that the people of God are marked by faith, nothing else. And then we get to the biggie, verse 14 and following. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you think about flesh, what do you think of? Imperfections, yeah. I mean, like we know all too well the imperfections of our own bodies, right? Um, there's something about flesh. Like we, we don't walk around talking about our flesh very much. Um, but it's in our flesh that we, our humanity, I guess, is most evident to us. We can see all our flaws. We can see our imperfections. Um, you know, our bodies age. They don't last forever. <laughs> They're not immortal. They get weak. They get sick. They die. Um, we get tired. We get hungry. Like we have all these needs <laughs> based off of our bodies. And so... When it says that the word became flesh, it's saying that the word who was fully God, not just like God, not just with God, but he was God, became what he was not. So who identifies weakness and frailty and imperfections with God? Anyone? Like when you think of God, does that come to mind? No, that's what we think of when we think of humanity. But it is so important for us to understand that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He didn't just appear to be man. He didn't just look like a man. He was a man. He was born. He grew. He died a physical death. He probably stubbed his toe. I don't know. Maybe he didn't cuss when he did because he was Jesus. But, you know, he was human. He ate. He brought, like, I don't, we eat because we need to eat to survive. But I don't think of God as needing anything. And yet while he was here walking on the earth, Jesus did all of those things. Maybe he even got sick. I don't know. But if you believe that he was fully human, that that he understands everything that we have ever faced because of his own humanness, then you also have to accept that he faced everything that went along with being human, with the exception that he did not sin. So he was fully God and fully human at the same time. It says he became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, now I'm going to get Old Testament nerdy on you. Um, the word there for dwelt, it's a weird word in Greek, and it literally means tabernacled. Like, this literal translation of it is the word tabernacled among us. So, in the Old Testament, what is the tabernacle? Does anyone remember? The tabernacle. Yes, where they worshipped. What happened at the tabernacle, specifically? Do you remember? The tabernacle was the tent of meeting, is what they called it, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. It was a transportable place of worship, but specifically, it was the place where Moses would go to meet with God. It was the place, and, and how did God make his presence known to them while they were in the wilderness all those years? Yeah, the cloud would rest over the meeting, and as long as the cloud was there, the people would stay camped there and when the cloud got up and moved I need to quit moving away from my phone okay 
when the cloud got up and moved, the people followed it because the glory of the Lord had departed. And so in the Old Testament, God makes his glory known to the people through pillars of fire and smoke, through thundering voices and burning bushes and rumbles from Mount Sinai. You know, it's this great and mighty type of thing. And that was the glory of the Lord. There was inside the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it had these two cherubim who were like their their wings were outstretched toward each other so they were almost touching and like up above that spot was called the mercy seat and the mercy seat was the place where the glory of god dwelled and so what it's saying here what john is saying and what his hearers would have immediately understood is that god the glory of god came to earth in a tent of flesh and blood, and it lived among us. His divinity was fully encapsulated within his humanity, but it can't be covered up completely. You can see glimmers of it throughout the gospel. So whenever Jesus heals somebody, you can see his glory shining through. Um, When he walks on the water or when he feeds the masses, When he speaks with authority, you can see that glory peeking out. It cannot be hidden. And so the glory of the Lord has come to dwell among us. And the promise of the gospel is that we will eventually someday dwell with God in glory, in heaven with him. And so glory has come down, and then one day we will go up to him in glory. And John Piper, have you ever tried to define the glory of God? What is the glory of God? I mean, it's one of those words kind of like beauty. How do you define beauty? Can you define beauty? Right, so I don't know how to define glory, so I looked it up to see how other people define glory. Um, John Piper says the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. So that means, let me translate that for you a little bit, that um, the glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. It's the fullness of his divine nature. Um, It's the, um, the embodiment of all of those things that make him God, all of his perfections, his love, his grace, his mercy. Um, And also you know, his more godlike attributes, his eternal nature, his unchanging nature, his omniscience, his all knowing nature, all of those things all wrapped up into one big shiny thing is glory. Because when I think of glory, don't you think of light? Like, ah, angels shining down. Um, and I think there's a reason that we associate it with light. Uh, for one thing, we believe that God is the purest light ever, He is the light of the world. But For another thing, uh, in the Old Testament, when Moses would go into that tent of meeting to meet with God, when he came out, his face shone. It radiated the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God. And so um, from this, from this fullness of all of his glorious perfections, Um, his limitless grace and his perfect truth, he pours that all out on us. It says that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
And that is why he came. He came so that we may know him. This is the, the biggest act of grace we will ever, ever experience. Because if he had not come, we would have had no way of knowing. We cannot know what God has not revealed. And God has chosen, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, in the latter days to speak to us through prophets, but in these most recent days to speak to us through his son. And that is what he's done through the word that became flesh. So now that we've covered that, highly feel. By the way, if you made it through that, that's one of the most highly theological sections of the whole Bible. I want you to know you've done good. If <laughs> you can sort of grasp, I mean, it's got all sorts of mysteries. We'll never understand it fully, but if you can get a grasp of it and, and a tiny bit of the wonder um, of the word that became flesh, um, then you're on the right track. So then it kind of makes this dramatic shift, right? Like we're all theological poetry and like high sounding theology. And then it just like shifts from one verse to the next to this straightforward retelling of events, right? It just all of a sudden, no warning, like we're off to the races. Here we go. I've introduced you to the word. Now let's talk about what it was like when he walked on the earth. It says, this is the testimony, this is verse 19. This is the testimony of John, whom the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Now, does that sound weird to anyone? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Like, why would it repeat it that much? (laughs) It's like he's emphatically saying, no, I am not the Christ. I am not the one. And here's the thing. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Do any of you remember from last week, we talked about the things that Jesus said about himself. Jesus is the great I am. And throughout the book of John, he lists out those things that he is. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the one true gate. I am the good shepherd. He names them off one by one, all of the things that he is. Jesus is the great I am. John is the I am not. I mean, that's what he says. I am not the Christ. It's the same exact words at the beginning of the sentence as it is. Um, when Jesus says it. And so he's being very emphatic about saying, I am not the Christ. Do you remember what I told you Christ means? Messiah. Okay, so the Messiah, for those of you who weren't here last week, the Messiah um, was a title, a term that was given to the promised one from the Old Testament, the one who was sent to deliver them, the one who was sent to rescue them. They were all looking for the Messiah. They were all looking for that one who was going to come and free them from Roman oppression. And they were on the lookout for it, right? Like they wanted someone to come and free them from Rome. And so it says, here's John kind of making a stir in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. People are flocking to him. And the priests and the Levites hear about it. So they send people to him and like, who do you think you are? What are you doing out here (laughs) baptizing people in the wilderness? Are you the Messiah? Like they straight up ask him. They don't beat around the bush. They say, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am not. And so then they ask, what then are you Elijah? And this is referring to 
the last verses in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, no, 5, hold on. It's either 5, 4, or 4, 5. Where did I write it? 4, 5. Okay, thank you. The, the last couple of verses in the Old Testament say that one like Elijah is coming who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so they say, are you Elijah? And he says, no, because he's not Elijah. He's John the Baptist. <laughs> and so he says, no. And then they said, are you the prophet with a capital P? That's weird. <laughs> Do any of you know what that's referring to? I didn't. I had to look in a commentary. So uh, don't feel bad. Um, in Deuteronomy 18, 18. God is speaking with Moses because they were good friends like that, and he talked with Moses frequently, probably in the tent of meeting. And he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so they were looking for this prophet who was like Moses. That's why it's a prophet with a capital P. And he says again, no. And so then they say, well, who are you then? And he gives this weird quote from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's the prophet Isaiah said. Did anybody go back and read that passage from Isaiah? Lucky you, I wrote a passage on this. I, I didn't write a passage. I wrote a paper on this passage when I was um, in seminary. And this passage is, um, it's, it's look, we'll just read the whole thing. Um, in chapter 39, before we get to Isaiah chapter 40, um, Isaiah has been speaking with King Hezekiah. Hezekiah has done this stupid thing, and he has shown these uh, people from Babylon, like all the treasures of Israel, they came to visit and he's like, look at all we have. Would you like to see it? And so, you know, they see it all and they go back and Isaiah comes to him and says, what have you done? What were you thinking? This is chapter Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5. He says, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be, shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah's like, well, good. I don't have to worry about that. Doesn't happen during my days. What's wrong with him? There's something wrong with him, right? Like, who says that? He says, at least there will be peace and security in my days. Sounds like the kind of king I want to have. Okay, so that's where Isaiah chapter 39 ends. He's like foretold this terrible thing that's going to happen. Babylon is going to come and take over Israel. And we talked about that last week a little bit in their history, that in 587 B.C., Babylon did invade Israel. They ransacked the temple. They destroyed it. They carried off people. And it was not a good time for the people of Israel. Okay, so there's this there's this prophecy about what's going to happen. And then in chapter 40, verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This was John's message. 
He is identifying with this. The next verse, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground will become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the important thing that I want you to notice in these verses, that it says, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And so John's ministry was specifically to the people of Israel, to those who were going to reject Jesus. God sent John ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus to say, hey, our Messiah is coming, get ready. He may not look like what you thought he was going to look like, but he's coming. And so obviously many of them believed his message. He baptized enough people to raise a ruckus. You know, the Pharisees didn't like what they were seeing. Um, But every time they asked him, who are you? What's going on? John always points to Jesus. He says, this isn't about me. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Don't look at me. Look at him. And that's what he goes on to say in the very next set of verses. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to who? Israel. And how did John know that Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Son of God? Because the Holy Spirit descended on him. Now, we don't have the description of that here in John. We have John the Baptist talking about what happened. But if you want to look up on your own time, um, when Jesus is actually baptized by John the Baptist, that's in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, or Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit descends on him from like a dove, and the voice of God thunders through the heavens. I mean, can you imagine if you were standing on the banks of the river that day? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so John says, this is what happened. I baptized him and God spoke and said, this is my son. And so not only did John see that, but he testified to what he had seen. He witnessed it and then told people about it. And that's what a witness does. Now, um, as we move on to this next section where the disciples join Jesus, um, I, I don't want to miss this part about John because I think, you know, someone like John, whose life and ministry have been foretold before he was ever born, um, I think it would have been easy and natural for him to be kind of puffed up with that. I'm John the Baptist. An angel foretold my birth. Like, did that happen for any of yours? No? I cannot believe that that didn't happen. You know, he had all sorts of reasons to be proud of himself. And yet every time he had an opportunity to make much of himself, he made much of Jesus instead. 
And I think that there is a lesson there for us, or maybe it's just my own sinful heart that wants to take credit for the thing that, things that God does. You know, witnessing and sharing Christ with people doesn't have to be difficult. You don't have to sit down and have this long, drawn-out theological conversation with Him. You just have to point them to the light that is shining out from your life, to the light that lives within you, and to say, the reason that I am like this is because I have the hope of Christ living in me. And that's why I am able to face this horrible situation. That's why I am able to make it through this, because I am not doing it on my own strength. It's the strength of God alive and at work in me. Look at him. Don't look at me and say that it's amazing that I have the faith to do this. Look at him. And that's what John continually did with his life. He said, this is not about me. This is about him. My life is not mine. It's about testifying to the one who sent me. Now, John was very fervent in his outspoken nature. He didn't just talk about Jesus. He also spoke out, rightly so probably, about some incestuous relationships um, with Herod. And it was kind of nasty, and he was beheaded for that. Um, So it did get him into trouble. But, um, I mean, man, you got to admire his spirit, right? Like he stood up for what was right and he pointed people to Jesus at every turn, every chance he got. Even at the expense or at the cost of losing some of his followers, right? Because in the next passage it says the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, one of them it names is Andrew. It doesn't give us the name of the other one. And what does Andrew do when he spends a little bit, just a tiny bit of time with Jesus? What does he do? He runs off and tells his brother Peter, and he says, We have found the Messiah. And Peter comes to Jesus. And then the next day, it's like, After this, Jesus is just piling on the disciples. It's like, bam, 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 bam. And then, funny enough, we don't know how any of the other disciples come to him. It's not told in John's gospel. You learn some of it in the other gospels. But at least here in this first chapter, you have Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Just one right after the other. It's like anybody who meets him can't help but follow him. They want to um, know more about him. And every single one of them teaches us something new about who Jesus is. Um, If you look back at verse 38, the two disciples of John who followed Jesus called him rabbi. So they recognized him as a teacher. He, when they talked to him, where are you staying? He said, come and you will see. So they came and saw. And um, then Andrew goes to Peter and he calls Jesus the Messiah. And then the next day, the very next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Now, I don't know if he knew Philip beforehand. It doesn't say. It just says he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was like, okay. Um, And so Philip then goes and tells Nathaniel, we have found the one who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, what he's saying here, what you should know is that in those days when 
the Jews referred to the Old Testament, I mean, they didn't call it the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament. So they would sum it up by saying the law and the prophets. And so what Philip is saying is, I found the one that has been promised to us in the whole of our scriptures, in the law and the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one who it is. And then Nathaniel's not too sure about that because apparently... I mean, it'd be like me saying, what good can come from Ole Miss? <laughs> Nothing. Just kidding. Some of you are quite nice, and it's okay that we are have different loyalties. Um, but that's kind of like the, the, the kind of, you get the general idea. Like that kind of, what good can come out of Nazareth? Like, pff, nothing good comes from there. And um, Jesus comes to him, and he sees him. And he says that he saw him in front of the fig tree, which is kind of weird. I mean, I don't know what happened in front of the fig tree. Would you like to know what happened in front of the fig tree? But whatever it was that Nathaniel was doing in front of the fig tree, um, it was enough to convince him that Jesus was who Philip had told him he was. And he declares that he is the son of God and the king of Israel. So in this whole chapter, Jesus doesn't speak very much. But when he does speak, he asks them what they're looking for. That's verse 38. He invites them to come and see. Also in verse 38, he gives Simon the name of Peter, Cephas. The next time he talks in verse 43, he's saying, follow me. Um, And the next time he's talking to Nathaniel saying, I see you. I know you. And then, not only has he invited them to come and to see, to follow him, um, but he promises them of the greater things to come. He says, you think this is, you think this is good? Wait till you see what else I can do. And he promises them that there is more for them in the future. He says, you will see greater things than these. You'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the same invitation and the same promise that he has given to us. He has invited us to come and to follow him, to see, to stop long enough to really look at him. Not just see him as a man, but to look at him long enough to see that glory shining through. To recognize that he is God sent to save us. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He is all of those things. And the story that he has come to live out, the one that is played out in his life, is the one that has been foretold from the beginning of time. It's not something new. It's not some kind of band-aid that God has to fix because humanity was broken. No, it was always his plan to do this. And he has invited us to come along with him and to see these great and glorious and wondrous things that he can do. And so the only question that remains is, what will you do with that invitation? Will you set it aside and hope that nobody finds out about it like I do some of those birthday party invitations? Or do you RSVP immediately with a, heck yes, I'll be there. I am coming right behind you. Like, how do you respond to that? Um, The whole reason that Jesus came was to show us God to, to know so that we could know him. And for those of us who choose to follow him, then our lives become about making him known.
we are called to know God and to make him known. And that is not something that I came up with on my own. That is the slogan of the Baptist Student Union at Mississippi State University. We are called to know God and to make him known. That is why, that is our whole purpose on this earth, is to point others to Jesus, just like John did, to point to that light and say, you know, this world is dark, but it's not so dark that the light cannot overcome it. The light is stronger than the darkness. The darkness does not win. No matter how bad things look, we have hope in Christ because he came. He came for you and he came for me. And he has revealed himself to us through his word. And I'm so excited that we get to spend this time learning more about him and seeing what he has to tell us through it. So I'll pray for us and then we can head out. Father, I thank you so much for this time. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for your grace that you have given us for coming so that we could know you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to know you more, God, and that you would give us the courage and the gumption to make you known, God, that you would help us to be lights that shine brightly in the darkness. Father, pointing others to you, to the hope that comes from you alone. Lord, as we go throughout this week, God, I pray that you would um, strengthen us, that you would be with us, Father, and that you would um, honor the time that we spend in your word, that you would draw us near to you, Father, and that you would make your presence known to us. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.